So we're seeing Fortune 500 companies, they're trying to downsize operations and they can do it through a merchant of record reseller or service provider. We see the flip side of that as well, where we started up moving very quickly, accelerating, growing mostly in cross-border markets, for example, are starting to look at it as more of a tool to maximize ROI on their sales whenever it comes to cross-border. You're listening to Leaders in Payments and Fintech, a podcast brought to you by Edgar Dunn & Company, the global payments and fintech consulting firm. Coming to you from the City of London, I'm your host, Martin Kodrish. And in this series, I'm meeting with leaders and practitioners across the industry to find out what it takes to bridge the gap between strategy and execution. My central question is, how can we commercialize and bring the benefits of ever deeper new technology to market in what continues to be a highly regulated industry? If you enjoy these interviews, please do subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. So enough of the intro, let's get straight into today's episode. This week, we meet with Matthew Steinbrecher, VP Partnerships at Reach. Reach is a merchant of record provider which acts as an intermediary between a business and its customers, taking responsibility for the payments process and assuming liability on behalf of that business. This is a great educational episode in which Matthew explains in more detail what the merchant of record model is and how it gives merchants access to local acquiring in foreign markets and the ability to process locally. This eliminates the need to establish expensive local entities, lowering fees, reducing false declines, and outsourcing fraud risks and global tax compliance. Matthew also shares his perspective on the latest trends in the merchant record space. So I do hope you enjoy this episode with Matthew Steinbrecher from Reach. Hey, Matthew, how are you doing today? Great to have you on the show. How are you? Yeah, thanks for having me. Doing well, thanks. Okay, so let's uh, crack on. Um, a lot to talk about with regards to merchant record solution. Before we dive yep. into that, perhaps you can just uh, introduce yourself and give me a sort of a quick personal background and then we'll take it from there. Yeah. Um, so my name is Matthew Steinbrecher. I started in the foreign exchange industry originally uh, and then kind of, you know, was a Forex broker on Wall Street. And then uh, one of my cousins actually got me introduced in the world of the global payments. And about nine or so years ago. And uh, yeah, it just kind of intrigued my interest and I decided to jump into the industry. Didn't know a whole lot about uh, just the world of payments or, or e-commerce or anything like that, um, but understood sort of the financial infrastructure behind it. And that's naturally how I came into, into the fold. Um, about a little over eight years ago, I joined a company called Reach, uh, which is a merchant record provider. It's been around for about a decade. So I was one of the early on employees and yeah, really since then, my entire career has been focused around cross-border e-commerce, anything online that crosses borders, whether it's foreign exchange or credit cards or bank transfers, um, all of it sort of hits my desk at some point or another. So that's been my expertise. And we use that merchant record model as sort of the way that we are leveraging in particular, um, facilitating the transactions. And so it's been really interesting just to see how the world evolves over all mm. that time. And yeah, never a dull day, that's for sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll learn a bit more about uh, the company Reach perhaps later on, but maybe you can just help me understand what the merchant record solution or what a merchant record provider does or offers. Yeah. So it's really interesting in the, the industry right now, the term has actually been one of the, at least in the payments industry, it's, it's become a bit of a buzzword. And I think previously it's had a lot of misconceptions about what it is and what it implies. I think the reason is that there's a lot of different players out there that are using um, this business model type, if you will, in different ways. And one of the 
one of the things that's changed recently is I think people are starting to understand a little bit more about what it entails and how it can be used in different ways. Mm -hmm. So I guess to, to kind of back up, one of the biggest misconceptions is that merchant of record is like this legal term that's very black and white. Mm -hmm. um, when in fact, it's actually just a definition that's been defined by visas localization rules. So it's more of a scheme rule than it is a legal definition of how you're running your business. Uh, like marketplace, for example, is very clear. Like that's a legal definition of a type of business. Um, but merchant of record is not. If you look at any sort of legislation across different jurisdictions around the world, you're not really going to find that term. You'll find a few other terms that are applicable to it, but not quite merchant of record. Um, and that's because it's something that's, that Visa and the schemes have defined over the years. It's quite a card centric or card network jargon. Yeah. Card network yeah, jargon. It's, so uh, help our audience understand it gets, what, it, what it is. Yeah, yeah. What it, what it, it gets what is even it? more confusing when you look at like aggregation two versus merchant of record or HAC versus merchant of record. But right. in a sense, the merchant of record is really just the, it's the responsible party facilitating the transaction. It's yeah. the person who's basically responsible for the financial flow of the transaction uh, and, you know, the any, any sort of chargebacks and fiscal responsibility. That is truly what it is. Um and if you act as merchant of record, whether you're a marketplace or service provider such as ourselves, uh, or just a straight up merchant selling products online, um, you are now acting as that merchant of record because you own the merchant accounts, which are held directly with acquirers. Sometimes there's middlemen between that. And those acquirers are directly given um, principal memberships by the schemes. Right. So the way that the schemes define things is that we have an acquirer who is our first line of defense and then past an acquirer is either a merchant of record uh, or marketplace is another definition that they utilize. Um, and so it's, it's pretty clear that anyone that acts as a merchant of record, you know, any merchant in the world, um, ASOS or someone like that would be a merchant of record mm -hmm. um, because they are actually handling the facilitation between uh, the money flow right goes from one bank account to another um and whenever you do that you own the merchant accounts with the acquirers or any psbs that you're utilizing and that's kind of where the definition i would say largely sits right um, but it definitely got some misconceptions around the industry of, of what it really uh sort of is in practice but at large that's the definition right so, so what what is the um how does the provider the merchant record provider fit into Picture. Yeah, I think so. Tr traditionally, Merchant of Record has really been looked at as a distributor. That's probably the simplest and in, mm. in layman's ways terms to to be able to explain what the business model is. And traditionally, a large company who operated very sophisticatedly in their respective domestic market. Um, you know, in the U.S., for example, we would look at like Macy's or Nordstrom's, one of the big box office retailers that it's all over the country. You can find it in any shopping mall and you guys have the similar in the U.K. Yeah. and so on and so forth. Right. Everyone has their big players that they all know. Um, so think department stores. Now, those department stores, they have great inventory. They have good selection. They have very good, you know, up to date fashion products of whatever's in, if you will. <laughs> I'm not argued by many, I'm sure. But uh if they wanted to sell in a country that they didn't have such a fundamental foothold in, right. they would need a wholesaler. They need a distributor. They need someone in Canada or in the UK or, or someone, you know, that 
understands the buyers in their particular market better than they do. It yeah. has bank accounts, that has boots on the ground, that has all the infrastructure to be able to handle those transactions. Mm-hmm. And so traditionally, um, you know, the, the real merchant of record space, or at least online retail, uh, started as in physical goods space. It started as really just acting as a full-blown distributor. So you ship a product to someone else's warehouse, that distributor then unpackages the product, QAs it, makes sure it looks good, repackages it in their branding, and then ships it out to the end consumer in a different country. That merchant of record or distributor would handle the payments, they handle the logistics, they handle the taxes or duties that are applied. If it's physical goods, they kind of handle everything for that particular merchant. That makes sense. Um, I get it. Yeah. So it's a kind of, you just outline the traditional model absolutely of the distributor. Okay. So yeah, and it's it it's largely the the biggest difference where it's evolved is that with those distributors, you you lose that sort of first party data to your customers because you're essentially passing your international customers to another party, your distributor, yeah. and they now own that first party data. They own the customer service to that end customer. They kind of own the branding of like, oh, well, we're selling it on behalf of X merchant for mm-hmm. you. So they're sort of sitting in the middle as this middleman and as, you know, and, and we're talking like, this is the traditional sense of cool. how Merchant of Records started, you know, 10 years ago or so. And it's, it's really started rapidly evolving over time and in a lot of different applications, right? There's B2B marketplaces and, and digital goods, and physical goods, but kind of looking at the online retail sector right now as the example, um, online retailers, obviously it's, it's very, for them to compete with the Amazons of the world. Um, and some of these large department stores that I had mentioned, uh, and then obviously with COVID a couple of years back, that obviously drastically accelerated things online. Mm. But these retailers, for the most part, and brands, they want to be able to have that first party data. Data is everything, right? We've got the whole AI revolution, if you will, that's happening, and and really understanding that data is is super important, and having that direct connection to your customers is important, good for your uh, you know lifetime customer value and all that. So what we're seeing is that the shift in the merchant of record space is either staying in that traditional model where you are acting as that full-blown distributor and you now own that first-party data as the merchant of record on behalf of whoever that merchant was initially, Um, or sort of like a financial model where you are giving the merchant the infrastructure of the entities, the bank accounts, um, all all the requirements to have boots on the ground, any of the tax implications um, and the legalities around accepting money in a particular country and then repatriating it to another country, it kind of split and evolved into these two different models. And um, the company that I work with now is much more on like the financial services side where we're actually more providing a service um, to the merchant than we are providing a service to the end customer, like adds that distributor. And that's kind of the divide we've started to see within the industry of where people have specialized. Okay. Um, And and, and that divide is... Where is it most apparent? Is it in by by product type or company size or geography? Where are we observing that divide? Yeah, I think it's quite interesting. Um, it certainly is broken down in different types of industries. Yeah. So in the digital goods space, for example, like software, software is infinitely scalable across borders. Like there's no there's no shipping, there's no duties. It's you buy it, you get an API key a second later, and you're done. Um, but someone has to type in credit card details uh, or bank transfer or whatever you're doing, right? But if we're looking at the credit card rails, someone has to type in their credit card, someone has to facilitate that transaction, whether it's an acquirer or a merchant of record or otherwise, um, 
what Merchant of Record will do in the case of digital goods in the space there is that they are actually truly acting as a reseller. But really, it's like, think of it as an agent model, right? I'm just acting as an agent to be able to resell this software in the same way you have, you know, uh, different uh, stores or websites will resell, you know, Microsoft Office products, yeah. for example. And they'll be able to sell you the licenses to those. And Microsoft gives them the license to resell you those API credentials or the, the you know, software itself. That's kind of how Merchant of Record work in, in that space. And we see that it's pretty cut and dry there. The laws around it and, and the way that it evolves with tax implications are pretty, um, pretty clear. But a lot of companies all over the map in the digital space are utilizing this. So we're seeing Fortune 50 and, or rather Global 50 mm. uh, and Fortune 500 companies that have a spider web, uh, 40, 50 entities, hundreds of thousands of employees all over the world. And are, they are trying to consolidate their operations. They have integrations with dozens of payment gateways and different reconciliation processes and hundreds of people on staff that are trying to figure out, oh, we're taking money into, you know, Thailand, and then we're pulling it back to our headquarters in the UK. They're trying to downsize the operations of that, and they can do it through a merchant of record reseller or service provider. Okay, and so that uh, we're seeing that. leveraging the infrastructure and the... The teams that the Mercer Record provider has built up, maintains as their core business, right? So, yeah. uh, okay, yeah. for a large company, what have you, they can downsize their own operations. And we, yeah, yeah we, we see the flip side of that as well, where it's a very small company started up, moving very quickly, accelerating, growing mostly in cross-border markets, for example. Um, they may utilize Merchant of Record because there are benefits to Merchant of Record and, and utilizing local entities and processing. Um, so they may want to get all of the benefits of those aspects of the business model, but not have to go and set up the entities such as those, you know, former Fortune 500s or whoever who have all of that, right? The, the whole name of the game in this world is like, how do I compete with Apple? How do I compete with Amazon? These guys are behemoths. Mm -hmm. They are just so good at what they do and they just dominate market share. And for a fast growing business and a startup founder who's got 10 employees, how do I make my product cheaper? How do I make my product more profitable as I go to market? Um, whether it's digital goods or physical goods, it doesn't really matter. Everyone's thinking about that. Um, maybe I could use Amazon to sell my products on, but how do I get that first party data, drive people to my own website and then still be super profitable and give the best experience to my shoppers? That's how you scale. That's your go to market strategy. Um, so long as you have product market fit, the go-to-market strategy is the only thing you really need to lock down. So that's sort of the key of, of what we've seen in this shift. I would say more recently in the merchant of record space is traditionally it was, I am a business, whether large or small, that is based in one country. I have sales internationally, and I just need someone to help facilitate those sales internationally. It's too complex. It's too expensive. It's foreign exchange, uh, you know, different payment methods. And so that's sort of the traditional way that we saw Merchant of Record. It's rapidly starting to evolve where because it's more renowned around the benefits of it uh, globally, people are starting to look at it as more of a tool to maximize ROI on their sales whenever it comes to cross-border. Um, so yeah, it's all over the map, big and small. Um, there's different applications to it, um, but it is certainly a, a powerful tool that people have used for cross-border sales specifically. Does the Mercial Record um, provide a solution feature in a marketplace setting? Yes, definitely. Um, 
a really I'm good example. Back to analogy, go ahead. Or your analogy, if you've got a you've got a company selling internationally on marketplaces in multiple markets, right? Mm-hmm. In, in that in that that scenario, they would be they will be using commercial rental provider on the market. Yes. Yeah. The extent yeah. the marketplace would be providing something similar themselves. So sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, Amazon, very good at it. Uh, but obviously they've got a lot of cash to park in whatever, you know, infrastructure that they want to build. Um, most people don't have that leisure uh, in their in their financials. So they have to find a better way to be more competitive to Amazon. Um, find a way to drive more traffic to their marketplace, um, lock down the buyers, and then that drives the sellers to come. So in a marketplace setting, it's almost more important, I would argue, because most of the time, and it does drastically depend on the marketplace. We're looking at something that's very specific and localized to a particular country, maybe not as applicable. Um, But uh, a recent marketplace I've been working with uh, B2B fashion marketplace, and they have a very, very global audience of buyers and sellers. Uh, and it's B2B. So we're talking about commercial invoices, like, hi, I want to order 10,000 units of, you know, a bunch of different sizes and colors of this t-shirt. I want XYZ amount of SKUs of that 10,000. Um, manufacturer says, great, that's going to cost $300,000. And we'll start the manufacturing process. I need a 20% deposit. And then you're going to pay the rest of the 80% when it's ready for delivery. And, you know, this is a whole B2B term and that buyer may want to use net terms. Mm-hmm. They want to be able to offset their cash flow so they can ideally, you know, essentially utilize a micro loan so that they don't really have to pay for that all up front on a credit card or a direct debit transaction um, to impact the cash flow on their line of business. Because if it's online retail, for example, you want that to be in your stores or on your website so that you can actually sell those products as you have them in inventory. So the key with online retail is figuring out your inventory cost. And in a marketplace setting, if you were to try and offer something like local bank transfers or net terms, if you have a seller, let's say in the UK, such as yourself and a buyer in the US, you as a seller in the UK, you cannot offer net terms to your buyers in the US unless you also have a business based in the US. Because then you can work with the US bank who can act as a, as a lender to offer net terms to your buyers who would also sign up for your program. Um, so you would now need to have multinational infrastructure as the seller and you're just a t-shirt manufacturer. Yeah. So how would you be expected to be able to do that? You have a warehouse and, and a team of, you know, a couple hundred, couple hundred seamstresses that basically make t-shirts. You wouldn't have that infrastructure or be expected to have that infrastructure. But if you utilize someone that's a merchant of record, you can now unlock that ability so when you send those payment terms to that U.S. buyer and say, hey, you're going to owe us $300,000 in the next three or four months, uh, but you can utilize, you know, a net terms option to pay over time. Um, and that's a B2B, which is obviously its own world right yeah. now. Um, and, and it's a separate type of example. But I'm just kind of walking through that there's a lot of different applications to this model where it can become very powerful. Um, in B2C, it would be the same thing. If I just want to buy something, you know, from a, I don't know, sneaker marketplace or any sort of digital marketplace online. If you're, if the marketplace is based in the UK, let's just say for argument's sake, the seller is also in the UK. If the buyer is in the US, all the transactions will be processed cross-border. So it'll be an inferior setup for both the seller uh, or the marketplace, whoever owns the mid, as well as the buyer. 
both people are going to hurt in that transaction because it's cross. Mm -hmm. How do the funds get remitted back to the, the, uh, the seller in that scenario from the, the, the transaction in the US, which you as the merchant record provider uh, have processed? How do I receive my funds from you as the, yeah, as the seller? It's, it's typically pretty simple uh, mm -hmm. from a straight merchant perspective. It's US dollars from a customer's US credit card goes into a US bank account yeah. of the merchant of record. And the merchant of record receives those funds in, in U.S. dollars um, from, you know, an acquirer or otherwise. Yeah. And then they move that money over to the U.K. to pay out the seller. Um, sometimes there's foreign exchange involved in that if it's trading back to, say, British pounds. Uh, sometimes there's not if it's just a like-for-like -like transaction. But the reality is the money flow does become a bit more complicated, I would say, because mm. you are actually accepting money domestically in the market of where the buyer is and then repatriating those funds yeah. cross-border to where the seller is. But because the merchant of record is the responsible party for that repatriation, um, it's significantly more efficient and, and cost-effective. That's part of the, the merchant record provider's solution is the, the, the back-end remittance. Yes. Um, and most sort of so end -end, really, you manage the end-to-end -end flow, as it were. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I'd say that there are sort of three major benefits to merchant records. There's, there's quite a few, but to boil it down in its essence with card schemes in particular, the first and foremost is authorization rates. An authorization rate on a domestic transaction is always going to be far superior than a cross-border. If the issuing bank and the acquiring bank are in the same country, the authorization rate on that credit card, the first attempted try on the transaction will be significantly higher. On average, about 10% globally. Some markets like, you know, Mexico, for example, it's gonna be like 40 to 50% higher. Some markets like US to Canada, it might be like eight, 9%. Um, mm. But about 10% is a pretty rough global average that you yeah. can utilize. Which is huge. So that's the, mm. yeah, which is huge, right? Especially in a market like now where everyone's just trying to maximize the shoppers that they have um, in whatever business vertical that they're using. So. That's sort of what we, uh, what we look at is the first and foremost, kind of the, the biggest impact on business is the top line revenue. So the authorization rate, the second is actually the bottom line revenue, which would be your cost. Mm -hmm. So whenever there's a cross-border transaction per scheme rules, uh, or rather scheme fees and interchange fees, you're almost immediately going to have at least a 1% bump in your fees. So for anything that's happening cross-border, any credit cards that you're accepting that are issued in a country outside of where you're domiciled you immediately have at least a 1% increase in your cost, uh, your underlying cost as a business. Uh, and merchants almost always are taking on the fees of credit card processing internally, so it's the cost of their business. So when you do that domestically, you're now reducing that fee by about 1%. So not only is your top line revenue increasing with those authorization rates, but your bottom line revenue is increasing because your fees also go down. Uh, of course, the merchant of record is gonna have a middleman fee to do this, but the reality is that you're still at a net savings. Um, from what you had started with. So that I would say is the second key point. Um, in third, it's really just about, as you said, the, the backend infrastructure, um, building that financial infrastructure and giving it uh, to the merchant and not allowing them or not having them rather to have to go build it all themselves. Right. Um, that's huge because it ends up being a net benefit for the customer. It's better shopping experience for your buyers, whether it's software or B2B or uh, you know, whatever it is, uh, direct to consumer online, retail or otherwise, uh, any sort of transaction is going to be far superior for the customer, but the merchant doesn't need to go and 
invest in all that infrastructure that the likes of Amazon, Apple, and so forth do mm. uh, in order to achieve that benefit. So that's sort of the and how much control does points. the merchant have when the when the when you, you, the money is uh, collected and it's deposited in an account in the U.S., for example? Do I, as a merchant, have control over how those funds are managed when I choose to move them back and FX as well? Yeah. Most of the time, most providers have some flexibility around this, but a lot of them do it in a very similar way. Depends how sophisticated they are with the FX management and the merchant, of course, and their, their needs if there is FX involved, for example. Um, the, the reality is most merchant record providers will really be touch and go. Um, some will be really s- slow with that money remittance. Yeah. So they might take a couple of weeks to be able to get the cash back to you. But most of the time you're going to be on like a, you know, T plus two daily settlement cycle as you would with a normal acquirer or PSP that you work with. Mm-hmm. Um, now there may be some floating of funds that the merchant of record does, because obviously if you're accepting US dollars in a US bank account, and you need to pay out the next day in the UK in British pounds. Mm-hmm. You've got some money to move internally, but that's the back end treasury management that the merchant of record is facilitating for you. Otherwise, you can build your own department that does that, but that's quite costly and risky um, because you're taking foreign exchange risk. You're having to hedge currencies back and forth. Like there's a lot that goes into that. And if you don't know what you're doing, your your bottom line can be hurt significantly due to foreign exchange risk and other factors. So that's like one of the, the key things I think that most people don't realize is that it is really touch and go as much as it possibly can be. You're just getting the financial and the entity infrastructure to be able to be more efficient with the way you process payments. That's kind of the, how it boils down in essence. Um, there is usually a large degree of flexibility for most merchants. And that obviously is very nuanced with marketplaces and things like that, depending on the complexity of the merchant. But um, that's generally how it would be set up. I suppose we've spoken mainly about cross-border transactions. Is there a role for the merchant record provider in a domestic scenario or is it? Primarily in that cross-border transaction. Yeah, definitely in domestic. Um, we've seen it. We see it more in the digital goods world yeah. um, because the merchant of record provider in the digital goods and, and physical goods world. But generally, if you're utilizing a merchant of record, they're also taking on a lot of your tax compliance liability, um, which increasingly, basically what happened in COVID, the world shut down. We all know what happened, right? But what happened was the governments were realizing that more and more software, more and more products were being sold imported and then exported into or out of their country. And if you're having more imports than you are exports, that has a huge effect on your GDP um, of your your nation. And so the governments were looking at this and saying, well, we're having increasing imports from this particular country. We need to be able to capitalize on the sales tax of our citizens that are buying products from overseas. Now in the digital space, because again, software is infinitely scalable globally, this is already very cut and dry, but in the physical goods space, typically we had customs brokers and agents that were able to handle all these taxes and duties and all of that. All of that is becoming digitized. All of that is becoming more heavily regulated across different government jurisdictions. And it's becoming more and more complex to be able, I mean, the global is huge, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to be able to sell to customers all over the world, but for the complexity that it takes to do it well, it's hard to set that infrastructure up. And so... What we're seeing a lot of times is that from a cross-border perspective, people love it because they don't have to think about the complexities of how to sell to the globe. But even in the domestic world, um, and again, we do see this significantly more in the digital space, almost exclusively versus the physical goods space. But 
in the domestic world, it is applicable because you now are able to offset the compliance, like U.S. sales tax, for example, very complex. That in the U.K. with HMRC, a lot more simple. But in the U.S., we've got all our different states. They all have different tax amounts. And like each city has a different tax amount inside of one state. There's a federal tax amount. There's different city and municipal and county taxes. Very, very complex. Different thresholds of when you have to charge tax and when you don't. Very complex. Uh, Avalar, for example, has made an incredible uh, foothold in the industry as, as, a, as a tax provider and calculation service um, that's embedded into most of the platforms today on, with online sales. Um, but the U.S. is notoriously a huge pain. And so a lot of people just say, you know what, I don't want to deal with the IRS. I don't want to deal with the tax authorities. I'll just give it to someone else to handle it. I just want to build a really good product. And they will utilize a merchant of record domestically. Uh, even though they have every capability of handling it themselves as their own organization, they just want to focus elsewhere. And uh, of course, teach their own, right? There's always a cost of business and, you know, there's a cost benefit analysis to everyone, but it's typically a cross-border spaces where it's far superior uh, in any market. But in digital, we do see it quite a bit in the, in the domestic market too. Where are we seeing the merchant record um, provider landscape evolving the most is it i mean is it is it, it's fairly mature in the us europe and what about other regions perhaps we just do a quick scan of the different global regions and the, the, the state of the virtual record provider market in those yeah those it's uh it's, it's quite interesting because the laws vary in different regions drastically mm. whether it's tax law consumer tax law or seller tax law or uh, how Visa and the schemes have defined merchant of record in a particular region versus other regions. Right. So there's a lot of nuance that goes into it. The reality is that all of the the majors, North America, the Eurozone, EEA, uh, Australia, New Zealand, they all pretty much fall under the same sort of category of the rules are generally the same. Um, you know, the EU is usually the first one to make legislation and then everyone kind of follows suit. Um, but that's largely very cut and dry in terms of how it's served up as a merchant of record, what you do. Um, there are really only a handful of players in the industry that offer this service. Um, where it's evolving rapidly and what we've seen is it's nothing new in a, in a space like LATAM. Uh, we've seen like the likes of D-Local scale. They just went public a couple of years ago. Uh, E-Banks, many of these other companies locally in LATAM specifically where they're acting as a merchant of record, they're giving you access to these very complex payment methods that are only available if you have infrastructure in Brazil and Mexico and mm. Colombia and Uruguay, these countries that most people aren't going to go spin up entities in due to cultural and operational complexities. And in a, in a third world or emerging market, we're seeing quite a bit that these merchant of record providers are very jurisdictionally focused. So you have some of those providers that I mentioned that are very strong in LATAM. You have some that are in Africa that are very strong. Um, I would say the biggest buzzword in our industry right now is India, because India is rapidly changing their legislation, okay. um, which that's a whole conversation in itself of how RBI has made their new guideline rules and how it's affected digital versus physical and aggregation model versus merchant of record versus acquiring model. It's, um, it's quite interesting. There's never a dull day uh, on that topic, but I would say India is certainly a, a big buzzword. Um, I would say that merchant of record is more commonly known in, in the regions like LATAM, for example. Um, where someone just says, hey, I want a catch-all PSP for this region. Uh, and they utilize merchant of record to, to do that and right. to do it legally and fairly and make sure that, you know, they're abiding by all the rules of whether it's the schemes or actual uh, tax authorities. 
Um, but we're, where we're really starting to see it accelerate to, I guess, answer your question is it's very helpful in these emerging markets. You know, India is the new China, for example, everyone's trying to get into it. Everyone's trying to navigate the legislation. It's very difficult to do. Um, it's always good, but most of the time, if you're a US based business or an EU based business, 50% of your sales probably don't come from India. And so it's a small market for you generally, massive market in terms of population. Um, but most of the time, people aren't even looking at the fundamentals that they have. You know, if you're European based and the US market is 40% of your business and you're not processing it locally, there's probably a ton of money you're leaving on the table because, right. you know, the cross border inefficiencies. Um, so it's, it's really utilized everywhere, but I'd say it's more common for people to feel pain in a place like India where their auth rate will dump to 20%, 30%. And they'll be like, okay, we have a problem. We either need to stop selling here yeah. or we need to figure this out. Let's go find someone who's on the ground in India. Um, so that's, that's sort of how it works. It's, it's mm -hmm. usually when it's broken, you go fix it. But if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And is that, so, are there any, um, I mean, in terms of UK to, to EU, are you seeing commercial record solutions being used, used post Brexit? Is that uh, a trend? Yeah, hundred percent. No. Yeah. Like a great example of this Stripe didn't increase the fees, even though the underlying interchange went up, but for a while Stripe did not increase the fees for UK businesses selling into Europe. Even though the interchange increased, they literally took the hit to mm -hmm. obtain and hold their market share. And then a few months later, once, of course, they started bleeding a little bit, they basically passed those fees on and increased fees by about 1.5% for UK businesses selling into Europe. Right. Um, and it was a wake up call, right? Of course, there were other issues with Brexit that, you know, we won't get into that, but from a payments fundamentals perspective, yeah. Yeah. it was no longer part of the European Union and therefore cross-border interchange applies from the schemes. And right. so your cost goes up and there was a big, you know, murmur in the industry. Everyone was like, oh, well, Stripe's increasing their fees, blah, blah, blah. Everyone else just did it on time. Stripe was the only one to absorb their fees for a small portion right. of time uh, in order to retain some of their clients. And then they increased their yeah. fees. Um, and, you know, I think it was a great move on their part. Uh, but the reality is customers are going to complain to Stripe. But Stripe's like, it's not our fault. This is the scheme fees. This is the government's at, at play. And then the schemes are charging their fees because they're doing cross-border transactions. Has nothing to do with us. We're just the ones facilitating the payment. Um, but, you know, merchants are merchants. So they, they don't understand as much of the complexity as we do in the payment space, obviously. Um, but the, uh, the application of merchant of record for either EU into UK or UK into EU is very powerful and still stands right. quite powerful today. And are you observing a kind of improvement on the auth rate in, in, that, in those scenarios? Is that feature yeah, or is it about pretty significant. mainly about um, cost savings? It's cost savings. It, it's not as significant, I would say. It's probably closer to like a 5 to 10%, which this, those numbers obviously drastically vary based on merchant category code yeah. and average order value and a lot of other inputs. But um, yeah, it, it's more of like a 5 to 10% range, but even 5% on your top line revenue is that's typically no small feat. If someone came to a business owner and said, I can increase your sales by 5% with a little bit of paperwork and, and, and some investment, most people would do it. Um, so that's, it's relatively significant, I would say. I think it'll grow more and more, um, but we have seen quite a bit of an impact on the auth rates. Mm -hmm. It does also drastically depend on where you are acquiring from, if it's EU into UK. It very much so depends what type of acquiring bank you're using in Europe. 
um, if you're using more of an ancillary EU market, let's call it, versus a major EU market, uh, the off rates will be significant. You might see 70, 75% off rates in the, in the UK, for example, where it should be well over 90% in most industries in the UK. So sometimes it's drastically larger, but it does depend. Right. Tell me a bit about reach payments, a um, bit about the background and, and your current situation and perhaps also what, what to expect next. Yeah. Um, yeah, reach is, uh, we've been around for about a decade and we originally spawned from a, a foreign exchange bank based out of Calgary, uh, called Calforex. And we were originally a division of that company and then kind of spun out on our own. Um, the reality is that that bank has been around since mid eighties and they have relationships and money service business licenses with all of the tier one banks globally. And so since, you know, 9-11 and some of the recent events throughout the world since, you know, the mid eighties, uh, banking laws have changed drastically. So it's very right. difficult for people to get that legacy relationship with tier one banks, such as we have, um, when they are a new startup, even when you look at someone in, as the likes of say Stripe, I was talking about them earlier, like they're massive. And they're a much larger company than we are. But for some of the relationships that we have, it's just that legacy, which in banking is everything, uh, the relationships and how long you've been around. It's very important to be able to have those relationships. And so it's been harder for a lot of fintechs that are coming into the space as a net new company to be able to retain those relationships. And that's really what put us at a massive, massive strategic advantage um, mm. from the get-go. And then we've since sort of broken out into our own company, I believe in 2016. And uh, it's still sort of sister company, similar ownership structures. Uh, we still utilize all those banking relationships that we've had. But because we were a division of that, we were able to accelerate drastically. Um, and we already had, you know, uh, licenses and, and we're moving money in global jurisdictions all around the world. So that's kind of what gave us the foothold. We evolved that into credit card payments, utilizing the merchant record solution to give this financial infrastructure uh, to fast growing businesses. We really started in the e-commerce space. Mm -hmm. um, because that's where we felt the market was most poorly served. Uh, we've since driven into uh, B2B, both digital and physical goods, as well as digital goods, software uh, and services too, uh, OTAs and travel, things like that. I, I was going to mention so, travel. Is that, that's interesting, right? So you, that's a recent um, addition, you're saying, that, that you're supporting yeah, OTAs? Yeah, over the past couple of years, mm. yeah, um, but, OTAs have become... I think since, since COVID, everyone's really looking at optimizing their fees and OTAs notoriously have either very high margins because uh, they're good marketers or very, very low margins and high volume. And so uh, when you have very low margins and high volume, you're looking at every single basis point to optimize your business and figure out how to make more money. That's where our business model is incredible. Um, yeah, it, it's expanded quite drastically over over the last few years. Uh, but I think for, you know, probably the first five or six years of our, of our company, we really focused on the online retail space. And that was our our main niche, but it's it's definitely expanded into a much more wider audience recently. Um, and yeah, where where we fit is we have this entity structure globally. We offer true local acquiring, issuing bank to acquiring bank, about seventy two countries internationally. Um, we're opening quite a few entities right now uh, in new jurisdictions. We watch where market shift. Uh, we watch where legislation changes, such as India. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, we watch where tax legislation changes as well. So we know where things are happening in advance of the merchants so that we can anticipate that move from governments uh, or from regulators, whoever it may be. And then we mm -hmm. try to build that infrastructure 
in advance. So that way our merchants can take advantage of it. Um, so we're always growing that entity infrastructure, but it's, uh, it's pretty powerful overall. And of course we still sell to you know, every country in the world virtually that's not sanctioned. Well, it's super, super interesting. Thank you so much, Matthew, for your time. Um, and, uh, I suppose one last question, how can the audience best reach out? Uh, LinkedIn's always great. Um, I usually am, am posting some sort of content there. So, um, always feel free to reach out if you have any sort of questions. I like to do site audits a lot. <laughs> it's part of, it's part of the fun part of my job. I get to walk through and understand the interesting setups of, of every different type of business. So LinkedIn would be the best. Otherwise, uh, Yeah. Yeah. So I, we go and, uh, I'll go into someone's site and just kind of show them like what their infrastructure looks like and you know, how they can optimize it, basically figure out if there's something they can do or something we do. Um, that's, that's quite often what I like to do. Um, and otherwise, you know, if you want to check out reach our websites with reach.com, um, nice. but yeah, LinkedIn's usually the easiest way. All right, Matthew. Perfect. Well, thank you yeah, again. Well, I appreciate the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll see you at, uh, see you next time. Cheers. Sounds good. Thanks, Martin. Bye. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. To hear more interviews, please do subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. It helps and means a lot. Also, I welcome any questions, ideas, or suggestions, so feel free to make contact and say hello. Reach out to me on LinkedIn or at edgardunn.com. You can send me a message there, or you can email me on martin.coderish at edgardunn.com. I look forward to hearing from you, and I will see you next time.